Hello, lovelies. Welcome to the Fat Joy Podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia, a fat person and professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears, we will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against diet culture, anti-fatness, ableism, racism, etc. If you'd like to support the Fat Joy podcast and get bonus content as a thank you, please check us out at patreon.com fatjoy. I am so glad you're here with us. Enjoy. Hello, lovelies. Welcome back to the Fat Joy podcast. I'm your host, Sophia, and I'm very excited to talk to Val today. Hi, Val. Hi. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing so well. I was mentioning before we start recording that I've been following for years, following you for years online. So it's such a treat to connect with you, to have been able to chat with you for a few minutes and to have this whole interview with you. So welcome. Thank you. So Val, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? What should we know? So I'm in my late 30s, which feels really weird to say because <laughs> I don't feel like I'm an adult yet. I have that feeling too. It's I don't think you ever actually feel like an adult. I think you just like start being better at pretending that you feel like an adult. Or maybe there's people who like are born feeling like adults. I'm not sure, but like, I've never felt like an adult. I still feel like I'm like seven years old. Yeah. And I often wonder, I'm like, people are trusting me with pretty serious things. Do they not know that I'm not an adult? Like it's, I have this thought. Taxes, like every, every year when it's taxes, it's like, I don't know how to do this, even though like you use the software and like it helps you, but like, actually I get my brother to do, to do it for me, <laughs> but um I'm like, he'll ask like a question and I'm like, I have no idea. Like, how, how, how should I know? I'm not an adult. I don't have an income. I don't, you know, own property or do any of those adult things. Um, so yeah, I'm in my mid, mid to late thirties now. Um, I, my pronouns are she and her and they and them is fine as well. Um, I am a ambulatory wheelchair user. So that means that I can still walk, I can still stand, um, but I use a mobility device, usually a wheelchair, sometimes a cane or a rollator. Uh, For a while I had a scooter, which was kind of cool, to help me be mobile because I deal with chronic pain. um, And I also have a tendency to uh, lose consciousness every once in a while um, due to um, a chronic illness that I have. So um, the term ambulatory wheelchair user, it just means that like you use the wheelchair when you need it, um, just like you would call an ambulance when you need it. Um, I studied music. Uh, I'm I used to be a jazz singer. Um, I don't really sing very often anymore. Um, 
but uh, I didn't like being a starving artist. So I found my way into corporate banking, um, which is, you know, the closest thing to music that you can find yourself in. Um, and I was there for about 10 years uh, working various jobs uh, in the downtown Toronto core. Um, and uh, in 2016, uh, I had uh, uterine cancer and um, they did a hysterectomy, but they damaged my spine uh, in the process, trying to get clean lines. Um, and, uh, ever since then I've been, it took me a while to accept that the title of disabled, like I continued to work right afterwards, even though I was struggling and in so much pain, I was just like, I didn't know that what the term ableism was, but, um, it was definitely internalized ableism. <laughs> I didn't see myself as disabled. I didn't see myself as a chronic pain sufferer. Um, and I continued to push myself until I ended up in the hospital uh, in 2019, I want to say. Yeah, 2019, because I ended up, I was on disability uh, for a full year before COVID happened. Um, and then it's just been, <laughs> um, yeah, the, my chronic illness and my disability are both progressive. So as time goes on, it gets worse. And um, that's where I'm at now is I'm still disabled. Um, and I will be disabled for the rest of my life. Um, and I developed a chronic illness because I ignored my disability. I live in the national capital region in Canada, uh, which if you're not in Canada, that's not Toronto, it is Ottawa. Um, I live outside of Ottawa and I have two dogs and I live with my brother who is my personal support human, um, who assists me with my disability. Uh, and he has a small Chihuahua puppy um, who is his autistic support, uh, puppy or dog. He's, uh, he just finished training a couple months ago. So, yeah. Oh, that's so neat. And that's the sweet puppy that's often in a lot of your Instagram photos. Yes. He <laughs> loves having his photos taken and he's so sassy. Like he looks right at the camera and like, or he'll do a pose and like kiss me on the face and then he'll turn and look right at the camera like, did I give you what you wanted? I love it. Whenever you have a carousel of a few photos for an outfit that you um, are show showing and taking photos of, I'm immediately, I'm like, oh, where's the puppy? Where's Roger? Like, go through <laughs> trying to find Roger. Because he does, he poses. Yeah. Yes, he's very like, <laughs> he loves, he loves the camera. Like as soon as the camera comes out, like I don't exist the rest of the time. But as soon as I sit in the chair that we use um, as our little like set or whatever, um, as soon as I sit over there, he runs over and he wants to be picked up. He wants to be in the photos. He wants to participate. He wants to, he, like he understands. And like um, my brother will take the camera off the tripod and like 
move it and he like roger understands that he has to look at the camera every time it's so cute and i don't really understand how he figured that out because he still hasn't figured out that the noises in the hallway aren't a monster but (laughs) he knows what the camera is yeah he knows how to pose and give good face he is he's figured that out oh my god it's amazing well and we'll talk about this but i do want to kind of shout out that you're you're a real proponent of slow fashion and we're, we're going to talk about that in some more detail, like what that means, what is hashtag styled seated. So lots to go into there, but I just want to let people know about that piece as well. Yeah. So Val, I, I just, I love thinking about that. You were a music, <laughs> you studied music and you're a singer and then you went to corporate banking. That tickles me. So. <laughs> I'm also wanting to hear from you about your relationship to the word fat, your journey with the word fat. Tell us a bit about that. So you had actually mentioned this before we started rolling. And my first thought was like my earliest thought of what fat was. It was something that I did to my mother. Um, so when she got pregnant with me um she ended up developing uh hyperthyroidism so she gained a lot of weight um she was really really thin um growing up and as a teenager and as a young bride and and everything but um she gained a lot of weight during the pregnancy and after uh the pregnancy because it was very difficult to manage with the hypothyroidism and um it's my understanding that thyroid medication has come a long way in the last 30 40 years so at at first especially there the medication wasn't helping with her weight and it was something that my mom hated using the word fat but she would also freely use it to describe herself when she was getting dressed or i feel fat i look fat and a lot of i had a lot of negative connotations about it um just growing up um i wasn't i didn't grow up as a fat person um however at age 12 um my mom and my mom was on a crash diet uh slim fast and she i don't know what the right word is like not forced but like made it sound like it was a fun idea if i was her uh, weight loss buddy so i was dieting um as like a normal uh not normal i don't like that word either um like i wasn't fat i wasn't thin i was just average an average weight 12 year old i was dieting with my mother skipping breakfast having a slim fast shake for lunch and a uh i don't know what they're called like the protein bars that taste like chalk but like with a hint of chocolate oh those things are terrible um and i ended up gaining weight from it Um, And then as a teenager, I put on more weight doing more crash diets with my mother. Um, And then 
I started getting called fat. I, I can distinctly remember um, a girl, I was in like 12th grade, um, making like beeping sounds like a truck backing up when I was walking um, and just being like completely humiliated by it. Um, and it wasn't until like, I gained a lot of weight uh, in college. Um, you kind of follow the same, at least in, in my case, I followed a lot of the same habits that my mom had of like, uh, emotional eating and crash dieting. Although I was never really good at sticking to a crash diet, it would last like five minutes. And then I'm like, literally five minutes, I'm like, yeah, I'm not eating. And then I'm like, no, I'm going to eat. And then, um, but I was also very active, like uh, an active teenager. I played rugby. Um, I used to walk home from work from, uh, when when I was in Toronto, I would walk from uh, Eglinton and Birchmount to uh, Markham Road and uh, I'm trying to remember what the Ellesmere Road. Um, that's a it, it's like five k, and I would take like the the uh, hydro pass, and um, I would walk home after work because like it really doesn't matter when I get home if there's you know I was single and um wasn't such a big deal if I you know instead of taking the bus which took an hour if it only took me an hour and a half you know that's fine um so I was active but I was definitely heavier than most people around me and it wasn't until the pandemic hit that I kind of got into fat liberation I got so frustrated seeing celebrities on my feeds, um, Facebook and Instagram and everything like that, uh, Chrissy, not Chrissy Teigen. Um, oh my goodness. She played Wonder Woman. Uh, oh, Gal Gadot? When she, yes. When she was singing, uh, the John Lennon song with her, her other, uh, um, uh, the other celebrities, it was like a, a meme. They were all like off key and singing uh, Imagine. Uh, that was when I went through my feed and like between like, I, I realized I had nothing in common with these people. I had, I was following like thin white influencers and um celebrities and i was like this these people are completely out of touch like the world is ending and um i don't know like they're complaining that they don't have access to their fancy lettuce that you know and i'm sitting here like with a disability and a chronic illness afraid and fat and afraid for my life that like if i end up on a ventil ventilator i'm gonna die um so i went through and First of all, I deleted Facebook and then I um, went through my Instagram feed and I just started deleting people left, right and center. And I started searching for people who look like me. And uh, the first person that I found 
happened to be Leela Kelleher. I don't, I'm not sure if you know who she is, Leela Sos. Um, so I, and I had started to take up sewing and couldn't find patterns that actually fit me. Um, I was making masks uh, and like, I'm like, ooh, this new skill, I, I can make clothes for myself. Couldn't find a pattern. And then she popped up in my feed and I immediately followed because she looked like me, like her body looked like mine. And uh, Jess, her uh, business partner, looked like me too. And I'm like, whoa, there's like people on social media who are fat. Like it just blew my mind. I, it had never, it was like, I didn't know that that was possible. Um, and then it just sort of like the algorithm kicked in and started feeding me people who looked like me. And I was just like, this is great. I'm clicking all these people. And then, um, some, I, I don't remember who it was, uh, put out a list of like books that you should read. If you're new to fat liberation, I ate that up. I read all of them. I was like, this is like, I didn't know it's okay to be fat. First of all, I had no clue because like I grew up feeling like it was something terrible that I'd done to my mother and something that I should be ashamed of because I had problems, uh, not eating, but like I'm hungry. So I'm going to eat and my body just naturally make like turns it into fat. Like I, I didn't know. I honestly had no clue. And I was so relieved. And then I started like, I shared a couple of my makes that I made from, uh, Muna and Broad's uh, sewing patterns with Leela and uh, Jess's uh, pattern uh, company. And they got shared. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, people are interacting with me. Like, okay, when I was just following people who didn't look like me, I basically didn't exist. And then I had a really, really terrible experience one day where I was out um, in my wheelchair and someone, an older woman, um, made a comment, several comments at me, uh, regarding the fact that I was fat and in a wheelchair and that I was disgusting and, uh, a waste of space and a waste of government funding, which I'm currently not on any government funding. It was very presumptuous of this person. And I got home and I, I tend to write everything in my iPhone, like in the notes app, like it's almost like a diary. Um, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to share this. Like, I'm sure I'm not the only person that has experienced this kind of stuff. Like it's the, it's fat phobia mixing with ableism, which I now knew those words because <laughs> I'd been following people and uh, I shared it and it kind of went like not viral, but like viral for me, like who had never really interacted with anybody online. And I was like, wait, people want to hear about my experiences and people relate to this. And 
So I started sharing more of my iPhone diary um, and people really responded to that. And a lot of them, especially uh, when, when I first started, my posts were very angry sounding. They were angry. They were written from a, a very angry per, like part of me that, you know, didn't know that it's okay to be fat and to be disabled and it doesn't make you any less valuable. Um, and then they've kind of softened over time. My posts are a little bit more like, not necessarily joyful, but they're coming from a place of compassion. And it's kind of what I wish I had heard growing up or what I wish I had heard as a young 20 something who, you know, was trying desperately to look appropriate at work, uh, wearing exactly the same thing as everybody else, but it just wasn't appropriate on my body. Uh, and I try to like, that's, most of the time, like every once in a while, I do have, you know, my most recent post yesterday was, or two days ago was about like a doctor's appointment where I had a really bad experience and that anger comes out and I write about it, but, um, and I find that it helps instead of just keeping it in my, uh, phone, sharing it with people who relate and are compassionate, um, helps me and it it seems to help other people um but it's a lot of my posts are things that i wish i could hear now things i could things that i wish were more normal normalized um and i try to normalize as much of my experience or treat it as normal even though like people will look at my profile and say, Oh, okay. She's like so intersectional as if that's like a, a descriptor of someone where they've got, you know, I've got autism and I'm disabled and I'm uh, fat and all these, all these descriptors, but like there's a lot of people who also have the exact same descriptors and there's nothing unique about it. It's, this is a normal human experience to have more than one identity. Yeah, it's so true. I love that you just said that because we do, it's almost like a check box where we're like, oh, check that I'm fat. Okay. One marginalized identity, check that I'm a woman. Okay. Another, you know, you know, got to deal with misogyny. Like we do tend to do that. We like to classify people as, and then, and it's very interesting thinking about like Sonia Renee Taylor's, the body hierarchy concept of like the ladder. And I, and it makes me, it just, when you were talking, I was like, oh, I wonder if one of the reasons we do that is perhaps unconsciously to see how far down from the top of the ladder are we? Oh, I have this marginalization. Okay. Drop a couple rungs, another marginalization. Okay. Drop a couple more. Like we're almost like trying to put ourselves in proximity to or in relationship with what is kind of this constructed i would actually look at it the opposite way where at the top of the ladder is 
patriarchy. Women are already, you know, second rung uh, or white women, I would rather say white, able, cisgendered uh, women are second rung. And then it's so being in the second rung, you're trying to maintain that space. So to maintain that, you have to make sure that nobody pushes above you. So um, you unconsciously or consciously marginalize other identities and push them further down and create this hierarchy that keeps people from moving up because you don't want anybody, you can't be a, a, well, you could be a white man, but, or a white cisgendered man, but most cisgendered women are not going to, uh, like they're not going to give right of way to somebody else who is below them. So they're constantly, so the patriarchy is pushing down and then everybody who is higher up on the rungs is also pushing down to maintain their power um, or their perception of power. Yes, yes, yes. Ooh, that's so interesting, that way of thinking about it. I think that's really true. I feel the truth of that. Do you know how we change it, Val? <laughs> I feel, I think, about, oh my God. Right? I feel like I think about this all the time. Like, So I think... The first step is, hmm, I think that the first step would be whoever is closest in proximity to power needs to become aware of the system that they're in and that they are benefiting from it or they're not necessarily benefiting from the system. They're benefiting from the suppression of others. So we are all or we should all be allies against this system. And when I say patriarchy, I just want to be clear. Like, it's not about hating men. It's about hating the system that, it's, that has been created. So um, we need to become aware of the system that we're in. And then we need to work together instead of infighting. Infighting keeps everyone... Uh, too busy to worry about what's happening outside of that little fight. So instead of fighting with our fellow <laughs> women, our fellow uh, trans sisters, our fellow uh, thin sisters, our, uh, like there's a lot of discourse I'm seeing online about like mid-size versus uh, fat versus thin versus like, the system keeps us all down. Yes, some of us uh, benefit or not benefit, but don't have to take on as much weight. And like I'm talking like not physical weight, but like um, as much pressure, I guess is the right word from the system. But like they, we all need to work together to dismantle the system. And if we're too busy fighting amongst ourselves about labels and who is uh, the most marginalized or the least marginalized and who has power and who doesn't, we need to just ex 
accept the system is there and work together to dismantle it because we're just wasting time talking about like how the system is destroying each of us. It's like, it's just like, you're just comparing people's troubles. Like it's a lot of like that conversation around like how, uh, when you talk about uh, um, being a privileged person and there'll be like the white cisgendered male who has had uh, a very hard life and grew up in poverty and they go, I don't have any privileges. I had to work. I had to work for everything I had. It's, it's defeating the purpose of the conversation if we're all just comparing our experiences and trying to figure out who has it worse? We need to just accept that the system really screws over some people, and but it screws over all of us, including men and including um, cisgendered men and including thin white cisgendered women. Um, everybody, the system is not built to help us. It's built to put us in little boxes so that we fight with each other while the person or the people at the top of the pyramid reap the rewards. And for some reason in, in my head, the person at the top of the, the ladder, this is something that only Canadians will get is always Galen Weston. I always see him at the top of the pyramid. So we need to like, Get him off the top of the pyramid. I see the mono the little Monopoly man <laughs> with the monocle and yeah, like the tuxedo. It's like I'm the billionaire. <laughs> I guess like I picture billionaires like instead of like them dressing in uncomfortable clothing, like a suit or whatever. I always picture them like in their cardigans and their like you bare know, feet. Yeah, <laughs> that's, like that's the modern billionaire. The modern the billionaire. Those are the <laughs> I don't know which is worse, like the uh, robber barons of the early 1900s or the current robber barons that we have now. Like, I, they just dress differently. They're the yeah. same. Yeah, exactly. Their motivations are the same to maintain, maintain power and maintain their own money. Oh, and add to it. Yeah, yeah. That was really, I thank you. Thank you for exploring that with me. I, which of course leads to the next question is, well, I know a little bit of my answer, but I'm curious what your answer is. So the next question I think about is, so how do we invite people into allyship? How do we invite people into thinking about others? And my answer was, create a podcast to get fat people on it to talk about how awesome they are. Um, what's been your answer? Um, so I'm actually kind of going through inviting people into allyship personally. Um, I have kind of kept a lot of my health issues, not private, but like um, I haven't really gone into great detail with my dad and my stepmom. Um, and we met up last weekend and I sat down and I was explaining 
not only like the like in case I end up in the hospital, this is what I have so that you're not, you know, shocked or, um, you know, dealing with like trying to learn what it is at the same time while trying to assist my brother with managing anything like to do with me. So I was talking about that, but also I was very gently talking about how being fat is going to affect my treatment. Like if I end up in the hospital, the doctors may not believe the level of pain that I'm in. Um, they may say that they have difficulty or impossibility of getting uh, correct blood work, which I experienced at Christmas uh, when I had COVID. Um, they said that it's impossible to uh, set up a proper IV on a fat patient after stabbing me like multiple times. <laughs> that is some bullshit. Uh, oh, I know. <laughs> they. It was just like it was. It was a terrible experience. So I was relating this to and using it, relating this to my uh, dad and my stepmom, who are both white cisgendered and live in privileged, able body bodied. Uh, and are, you know, considered an average uh, weight. So they've never experienced that. And I did get some pushback. Well, you know, obesity is this and obesity is that. And I'm like, okay, but if, um, like, for example, we were talking about the fact that I was denied cortisone shots for my back because... Um, because of my weight, uh, it, the doctor said that, um, it wouldn't do any good and I would have to come back in six months for another one. And I said, and I related this to my dad and my stepmom and my stepmom's like, well, you know, cortisone shots do have all these risks and, you know, you, you know, they're not a one-time cure. And I said, well, my asthma medication that I take regularly, I have to take it more than once for it to be effective. It's the same thing. Like the fact that I would have to come back in six months and get another shot doesn't mean that it didn't work. That means that I need another treatment just like, you know, any other medication that you take at intervals like insulin or, um, heartburn medication or you know like I just started listening off and I could see like a little light go off um she's then she was like oh yeah I guess that makes sense and I was like and this is why if I go in or I have a medical emergency I need you to be able to advocate for me if I'm not able to do it for myself um because with Aaron my brother being autistic he could you know, go nonverbal, have a nonverbal episode, or I could be nonverbal. So I might need you to be able to advocate and I need you to be able to stand up to these doctors who have medical fat phobia. Um, so I've been working on that with them and just trying to like, I don't want to be, because there's that parental relationship, I don't want to be aggressive in it i want to be respectful of the fact that you know they are my parents 
and I don't want to get in a shouting match. Uh, this isn't the time to like come across the table at them, uh, shouting, you know, I have rights, but <laughs> I'm trying to educate them and kind of like when they have these points where they're agreeing with the fat phobia, questioning it and letting them come to like, Hey, you know, that, that makes sense. Like, why are they doing that? Like, and let, let them kind of come to their own conclusions after presenting the facts. Like, um, my dad has been very, very, uh, concerned that I will develop diabetes just on the basis that I'm fat. Um, although diabetes does run in my family on both sides. Um, but he's like, anytime that I talk about my weight, uh, or ask people to not talk about their weight or their diet, um, he brings up diabetes. And I said to him recently that like, you know, the instance of uh, thin people having diabetes or developing diabetes is like 25%. And the incidence of fat people um, developing diabetes is only 26 or 27%. So it's really, you have just as big of a chance of, of developing diabetes as I do. You like sugar. I like sugar. We could like, we could race to see who develops diabetes if you want, but like, it's really going to be like, it's, it's just going to happen to either of us, whether you're thin or fat. Um, it's more so based on genetics than anything else. And he kind of like, he's like, those stats seem like you pulled them, you know, out of nowhere. I'm like, here, I'll pull it up on my phone. Do you want to place a $5 bet on that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, that's nice. the great thing about having, you know, uh, an iPhone nowadays is like, you can just pull up the stats and be like, here, this is from John Hopkins. This is like an actual, this isn't from like some conspiracy website. This is actual medical research from a well-known medical facility. Um, so I've been working on bringing them into fat allyship as well as disability allyship um, because our society definitely has a lot of ableism um, ingrained into it. Um, my dad has made comments before about like, because I'm ambulatory, some days I'm fine and some days I'm not. And he'll like make jokes about my cane when I'm using it. Like, Oh, do you really need it today? And it's like, yes, I actually do. So I've been kind of just explaining and questioning their, instead of like questioning their thought process. Like, why do you think that I might not need it? What, what is it that I'm, saying or doing that would lead you to believe that I don't need it. Why would it, what's the benefit of like for me to fake it? 
Wow. You're so patient, Val. I have to be. They're my parents. (laughs) If it wasn't my parents, I'd be swearing at them and, you know, educating them like by the throat. But they're my parents. So, you know, you have to show some respect and it's easier. I've learned, you know, that adage about like you bring more bees with honey than with vinegar. So um, I've found, I have found personally, even with doctors, like, when I experience medical fat phobia in a doctor's office, I find that instead of being, and my first instinct is to like throw punches and be really aggressive, but I found that like taking a breath and just like being very gentle about it and just saying, why do you think that like almost make them confront their own um, misconceptions why is it that you think that my being fat is going to cause an issue for a surgery? What, like, explain that to me. Or same with my parents, like, just be very, like, get them to explain their um, their hate or their, I don't want to say the word, it is hate, but it's it, it's kind of like their own bias. Like, explain it to me. And then, now that you've explained it, let's uh, poke holes in it. Is this a straw man fallacy? Is this like, let's take a look at that and examine it together. And I can answer questions if there's a question in there uh, that they don't understand or they're not sure about. And I find that that tends to work better because when you confront people aggressively, they tend to get their back up and they're not going to... um, want to hear you or their ears turn off. Yeah, it's true. That's what I do repeatedly. <laughs> and I'm like, I need a better way. That was the way that I used to be. Like, <laughs> And I didn't get very far. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm going to try to do that more. I, it's funny. I do try. I'm, I've, you know, in medical situations, even with my physio recently, because I'm going for some support with my knee and I said, oh, as a fat person, she's like, don't call yourself fat. And probably what I should have said is, well, what's, what's, what is it about that word that you feel uncomfortable with or something like that? Instead, I was like, what other descriptor should I use? Right? See, great question. I didn't do that. I was like, well, actually, no, I am a fat person. I'm a fat activist. I like using this word. I would invite you to use this word when talking to me. So I kind of, I kind of go to, uh, well, I don't know if it's too much or, or, it's just kind of my style is to come back really direct, very clear. Also, I'm just exhausted by explaining this shit all the time. The emotional labor piece, I'm just so over. So I also think I'm deep, I've become deeply impatient. So I'm going to take some inspiration from you, Val. I'm going to like slow it I'm down. I'm going to try being a little more direct sometimes because sometimes it gets things rolling a little quicker, but We'll take inspiration from each other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and I just, I I love that you're having these experiences where there are openings, where there is a conversation able to follow. Yeah, that's that's really inspiring. I used to not, like, when those fatphobic statements or those ableist statements were made, I used to just kind of shut down, but it's, it's only since the pandemic when it was like life or death 
that I started using those, seeing those as opportunities instead of just shutting down and like crying later about it and taking it super personally. Um, and sometimes it's, it, sometimes it is personal, but a lot of times it isn't. It's just a misconception or a, um, a bias that people hold based on information that is outdated or not true and being able to just kind of take a breath and just let's talk about that for a second like and address it and it definitely has helped my mental health and it's prevented repeat like repeat situations where this person will continue to make those types of remarks because they know that one, I'm going to, we're going to have a conversation and it's not going to be fun necessarily. Um, and two, um, we've already kind of broken down why that bias is not true. And I'm always ready with my phone to pull up the statistics. Um, yeah, like just having, seeing it as an opportunity instead of taking it personally has been a big game changer for me. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. And I find having those sources ready because I find people are not super willing to believe the fat woman saying, hey, my fatness is okay. <laughs> but if I point them to a study or I do a lot of referral to the maintenance phase podcast episodes, you know, like, oh, you have a question about diabetes? Great. Aubrey Gordon and Michael Hobbs talked about it on this episode. I will send you the link. Take a listen. Happy to discuss. And I find that that often leads to further conversations, which is nice. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's hard, though, whether it's fatness, neurodiversity, ableism, like to have to spend time convincing people of your own inherent worthiness of being treated with dignity and respect and as a human. I mean, I just, I'm, I, that's the part that just breaks my heart every time I have to do it. I tend to, so if someone doesn't want to have the discussion, because every once in a while, as soon as, like you said, no one wants to believe the fat woman saying fat is okay. Um, sometimes when you start, the conversation or try to have that conversation you get the big not this again kind of like it happens more so with doctors because my parents know that I will definitely confront that but I in those situations where the person has just sort of shut down and doesn't want to have that conversation I generally call a spade a spade and I say like oh okay so it's my understanding that you are a supporter of eugenics and that usually, no, 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 no. They backpedal because nobody wants to be called a eugenicist. Um, and that usually reopens the conversation. Um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, very few people are proud to say that they're eugenicists. Um, Although you will get the odd, I, I have had the odd person who's like, well, you know, survival of the fittest. And I'm like, mm, 
really we're a like community-based species we survive what makes us human is our caring for one another and one of the earliest signs of humanity of like classical humanity uh by archaeologists is the mending and like wildly considered is the uh they found a uh fossilized human bone that had been broken and had been healed so the idea is that that is humanity because a person back then couldn't have survived without someone taking care of them while the bone healed so the caring about one another that's part of what makes us you know different from other species and it, if it was survival of the fittest that bone would have never bended like it, it never would have mended it never we wouldn't take medicine when we're sick we wouldn't like that that argument doesn't really hold water anymore because that's not that's not what humanity is no that's true we do care oh i love it i'm gonna use all of this i'm gonna say next time i go to the doctor so what you're saying is you're a eugenicist do you believe in eugenics and then i'm also gonna share that story about the bones that's beautiful thank you not a problem <laughs> <laughs> You're so wise, Val. I'm so glad we're no, talking. No, I'm not. I just uh, spend way too much time on the internet. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about fashion before we close. So did you create Styled Seated? Yes, I did. Yeah, tell us about what that is because it's pretty wonderful. Being fat, you have to shop online a lot, especially if you're beyond what size is normally carried in a store, which is like 18 to 24 tends to be the max in store yeah, size. Upper, upper max. Yeah. yeah, that's like the upper max for like a place that says that they're size inclusive. Exactly. Yeah. Then you have to buy things online and it's very hard to buy things online if you don't know how they're going to fit. You can look at the size chart, you can measure your body all you want, but bodies come in different shapes. So even though the measurements match, the shape of the garment might not match. And bodies move throughout the day. You don't just stand there like a mannequin. So like even if they show the design on a body that looks like mine, um, and the person standing there like beautifully posed. I don't know how it's going to fit when I sit down. And I'll, we spend like ridiculous amounts of time sitting down, whether you're disabled or not. Um, office jobs, sitting on the couch, watching Netflix, eating. We tend to sit at a table. So clothing not showing how clothing looks on a seated body doesn't show how where it's cutting in or whether it gapes at the back or whether it's too long or too short um especially like i know for me i can't cross my legs so if i'm buying a dress it can look super cute like uh, ideally i love like right above the knee length on me because of my height i'm very short and that tends to make me look a little taller 
But if I sit down and I can't cross my legs or keep my knees together because of my back injury and because my thighs are fat, I'm going to end up flashing people. So I want to see how clothing fits on a, a seated frame before I buy it. Um, because sending stuff back seems like a really, really easy thing to do, but it's not you end up paying twice for shipping. Um, even if they have free returns, currency exchange, uh, oh my God, uh, tariffs like coming from the States or other, um, I, I recently purchased a, a Ray lounge set. I say recently, like September. Um, and that duties were like almost as much as the lounge set itself. I'm glad that it fit because if it didn't, <laughs> I'd be just reselling it. Like it's not, there's no benefit to me trying to send it back because I've lost that money. Um, so, and especially as someone who sits a lot in a wheelchair, um, certain garments, especially outerwear for me, um, don't work when you're sitting down. So, um, like a long coat, even if it has a two-way zipper, once it's like, that's meant for like sitting on a bus or sitting in a car where there's warmth. If I'm sitting in my wheelchair outside and I have to unzip the bottom, my legs are cold. Like, the, my legs are exposed. Yeah, the coat now has more ease in it for me to sit, but my legs are cold, which defeats the purpose of getting a long coat. So it started, I noticed that um, people were showing more seated poses in the sewing community, which is kind of where I started with my fat journey. Um, and but no one was doing it with like slow fashion or fast fashion or anything. And it puts two marginalized communities in an awkward position when like clothing doesn't, isn't, first of all, it's not even made for our shape or size, but then having to return it if it doesn't work for something that, like is common. It's not like I'm asking if I can do a cartwheel in this dress. I'm asking if I can sit in it and like if my knees are going to be too exposed or my legs are going to be too exposed. So I started it, the hashtag not this past January, but the January previous. And I know it takes a long time to get any sort of traction on a movement. So I challenged myself uh, that year to show every single outfit on my feed seated, um, which also meant that some clothing didn't make the cut <laughs> because I would put it on and then I'd go to sit down and I'm like, hmm, there was a Tamara Mala's dress that I ended up cutting into a crop top because I was like, I can't wear this seated. It's there. I'm way too exposed. Um, because as soon as I sat down, it was like, um, Sharon Stone. <laughs> it was just like not good and, uh, just way too much skin. So, um, 
I challenged myself to do that. And then I started sharing when other people um, use the hashtag. And I do that. I started originally, I was doing it every day. And then it kind of picked up. And now, then I was doing it once a week. Now I'm doing it once a month. And I just share them all as this like really long stories post because it's, it, it's overwhelming, but it's overwhelming in an awesome way. Um, there's been a couple slow fashion brands that have made commitments to always show their garments seated. And that means so much. Uh, it makes it so much easier to shop with them. And I'm more likely to buy from them if I can see how it's going to work on my actual body doing what it's most likely going to do. And it's, it, it's, um, it's really inspiring to look at the uh, styled seated hashtag on Instagram and look at all the people because it's across all intersectionalities are participating. Um, and it's so cool <laughs> to just see all these different bodies, all different shapes, colors, genders. And it's just everybody is seated and they all look amazing. And um it's great to, for like, if I see a sewing pattern that I want to try, I can see if anybody's made it and is showing how it sits on a, or works on a seated body. Um, and also like if a brand has brought out a new piece uh, in slow fashion, um, I can check and see how it's going to fit like on a seated body. And it's, it's, it's amazing. I'm, I'm really proud of it. And I'm also really overwhelmed by the support that it got very quickly. <laughs> um, I think it was just very different from what everybody else was doing or suggesting. And it's something that benefits businesses to not have to return clothing. Um, it has a potential environmental benefits because there's because sending something back isn't just like it magically appears on the other end there's um those uh trucks and the mail piece uh, uh, mail persons people uh delivering and they're so they're little trucks and um the packaging and all that stuff like it it benefits the environment by not having to return things like it's bad enough that our carbon footprint um, gets extended because we have to shop online and we can't necessarily shop locally, but it prevents it from being that much more. Um, it benefits people with disabilities. It benefits people who sit for their job uh, and are buying work clothes. Uh, it benefits people who are fat or have um, stomas, uh, so uh, like feeding tubes, um, because they can see exactly when they're sitting where the waistband will sit. And that, and bags, um, ostomy bags, um, like it definitely, it's, it's an important thing to show. And it, I'm, surprised that nobody really thought about it before. now that you're saying it it makes total sense 
but you're right. It, it's, yeah, you, you had to create it for us. Amazing. Val, I want to, for our last question, I want to talk about joy. I feel like we're, we kind of headed there with the joy that this hashtag brought and the impact that you've had. What else allows you to connect to joy? What else, how do you turn towards joy? Um, my dogs in particular, um, he's one of them's under the table right now. Um, in particular, um, uh, Duncan, uh, my Boston Terrier Chihuahua, uh, Boston Terrier Chihuahua Shih Tzu mix, uh, brings me joy every single day. He's like, he's a total mama's boy and he is absolutely pure joy wrapped in fun fur. And he just, um, doesn't matter what kind of day I'm having because I, I have really, really bad days um, with my chronic illness and he just brings me so much happiness. And of course, Leonard, my Shih Tzu also brings me joy. Um, sometimes some frustration, but I try to find joy in that too. Um, and Roger, of course, the Chihuahua brings me joy. Uh, I was remarking to Aaron earlier, uh, uh, earlier this week about how much he's changed the dynamic in our house since he got here, this little tiny chihuahua. All my dogs used to wear collars. Now nobody wears a collar because he chews on them. And he like, he gets us up in the morning at a specific time, which my two were very happy to just sleep in. He keeps us on a schedule. He's um, put a pep in the step of Leonard, who's 17. Um, and Duncan, who never really had someone his own age to play with like or similar aged to play with they play together they usually play together on top of me which is fun and also painful um if i'm laying on the bed they like to i don't know it's like a puppet show or something that they're like showing me that they can play um i find a lot of joy at being outside so if you aren't following me uh, on Instagram, you may not know that I am a shut-in from October-ish until April, May-ish because of lack of accessibility, lack of a warm seated winter coat. Um, so something that covers my legs and allows me to sit at the same time. <laughs> Um, and my wheelchair cannot handle, uh, ice and snow. And I've been looking online at different options. There's ones that look like tanks, but then how do I get, like, it's bigger than a doorway. So like, I don't really understand how those work and you need like a transformer option or something. Uh, yeah, where it something can, like, like, just like, I don't know. Um, but I've, I've been looking into them, but unfortunately it's been three winters where I am stuck in my apartment. I don't leave for six months ish, give or take a couple days. And also like my dad will come and pick me up and take me to his house for Christmas or something like that. Or, um, I go to the hospital by ambulance and, you know, 
I don't really count those as outings. <laughs> no, I, I feel like that's not. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> so uh, when I do manage to get out, um, like my first outing was actually just a couple weeks ago, like uh, maybe two weeks ago. And I had this huge grin on my face. It was freezing. My wheelchair got stuck in the mud because the snow was melting and like the, it wasn't properly shoveled. Like there was snow still, there was no snow on the ground, but there was like snow uh, banks. So, uh, and they had shoveled a path through, but it wasn't on the cement path because they're guesstimating when there's that much snow as to where the path is. So it was actually in the grass and I got stuck in the mud, but it didn't even like touch my joy. I was so happy. I was exhausted at the end of it and freezing, but it was just so amazing. And I went out yesterday as well into the sunshine and it was just glorious. Like if you're able to get outside all the time, like you are one of the luckiest humans in the world because there's something primal about being able to be outside and feel the wind and hear the birds and breathe fresh air. Like I have lots of house plants, but <laughs> it's not the same. It's, um, and I try to get out as much as I can during the months that I can, even if I'm in pain. Um, I try to still manage that and be outside because I know once October hits and we get that first snowfall, it's, uh, it's all over and, um, the joy is definitely gone for those months. Um, uh, it's not even like seasonal depression. It's just not seeing anything more than the walls of my apartment. Um, it's like um, the lockdowns times 20 um, because even during the lockdowns, people could leave to go to the grocery store and I can't even do that. So it's, I definitely find a lot of joy in going outside um, in the summer and spring and early fall. Um, and I wish there was a way that I could do it in the winter. Um, hopefully someone invents a wheelchair that can handle the snow and also come indoors and uh, someone starts a line of adaptive plus size coats um, because currently there's only one brand in the entire world that does adaptive size inclusive clothing. So adaptive clothing is for people who have various disabilities, depending on their disabilities, the clothes might have different features on them. Um, and that's, um, uh, there's a brand in, in London that uh, is doing that called Unhidden. And it's run by a woman who has a disability and she will make clothing um, made to measure, but she doesn't have a winter coat yet. Um, and I'm not sure that I'd trust a Londoner with a Quebec winter coat. <laughs> you know, like, it's like asking someone from BC to make a winter coat 
uh, their idea of a winter coat is like a spring jacket. <laughs> so um, I hope that one day either a plus size brand comes out with a adaptive winter coat or a adaptive brand extends into plus sizes. Um, but currently, if you're plus size and disabled, there's nothing for you if you're, um, and except for like makeshift, like um, makeshift options. Like if you're getting something made in the slow fashion realm, uh, I'll often ask for snaps instead of buttons because it's easier on my fingers. Um, or uh, I uh, asked uh, another brand to lower the uh, front rise and uh, extend the back rise on a pair of pants so that they're more seated shaped. Um, so there are some fixes, but they're not universal. And if you don't know what it is that, like if you don't, the only reason I knew to ask that is because I know how to sew now. So if you don't come from that background, you may not know to ask for those options, um, which makes it not accessible for everybody. Yeah, yeah. All right, someone listening, Val has two great ideas. Patentable, I imagine, and <laughs> <laughs> business worthy. So someone take up the charge. Absolutely. Uh, like more than one person asking for this, there's definitely a market. And if I had the money and the uh, ability and energy to take that on, I would. I would do it in a minute. Yeah. Val will consult for $3,000 an hour. One million. No. <laughs> One million. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. Val, it has been such a pleasure to get to know you and talk to you. And I just, I so appreciate, I was gonna say, I appreciate everything you've said. And I, I really do. I appreciate how you've had me think about things differently from how can I interact better, <laughs> perhaps in a more productive way with people who I would like to invite into allyship. Again, the styled seating is, styled seated is brilliant. And I'm just thinking about the places where I shop most often and there are never pictures of anyone seated. And you're right, it would make such a difference to how I purchase. And, you know, even what we were just talking about, like where there are still plenty of opportunities, lots of need for us to continue bettering. Yeah, just being able to meet the needs of all different types of people. And these are some really clear ways to do that. So I'm really grateful for our conversation today, Val. Thank you. I have lots of fun. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Before we go, I'd like to read a poem because poetry can reach our hearts in a different way. Poems can have us feel in a different way. And that's what this podcast is all about. Expanding our hearts, deepening our empathy, and inviting in joy. So each week, you get a new poem. What a great conversation with Val, right? 
I chose a poem called Famous by Naomi Shihab Nye for, for this episode. I think you'll see why as I read it. I'm just so moved by Val's tenacity, Val's brilliance in spotting gaps, I, you know, identifying them, doing something about them. Yeah, I just, I really admire Val in, in, a, in a really big way. And so this is the poem I chose for this episode. It's called Famous. The river is famous to the fish. The loud voice is famous to silence, which knew it would inherit the earth before anybody said so. The cat sleeping on the fence is famous to the birds watching him from the birdhouse. The tear is famous briefly to the cheek. The idea you carry close to your bosom is famous to your bosom. The boot is famous to the earth, more famous than the dress shoe, which is famous only to floors. The bent photograph is famous to the one who carries it and not at all famous to the one who is pictured. I want to be famous to shuffling men who smile when crossing streets, sticky children in grocery lines, famous as the one who smiled back. I want to be famous in the way a pulley is famous or a buttonhole, not because it did anything spectacular, but because it never forgot what it could do. Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at fatjoy.life, on YouTube at youtube.com slash at fatjoy, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash fatjoy. Please do check out the show notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. All right, lovely. I am sending you off with my best wishes for an abundantly fat joy day. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.